Hi, this is Robert Furrow, and welcome to Truth Quest Podcast. This is our Q&A, where we look at questions through the lens of Scripture. Our desire is to know what God's Word says so we can know what to believe, rather than going to the Scriptures to try to back up what we already believe, which is a surefire way to be wrong on certain things. The Bible says that it is the truth that sets us free, and we want to know what that truth is in order to set us free. Now, these Q&As are a supplement to our teaching ministry at Calvary Tucson. You can ask any questions about prophecy, apologetics, personal life, personal living for Jesus, what, how you might do, do in a certain situation. But we also ask, if you watch one of our previous studies, if you have a question, write the question down and go ahead and submit it. And you can ask any question by writing the word question, putting the word question in front of it, and then writing out your question rereading it a couple of times to make sure it makes sense, and then go ahead and submit your question. So the first question that we have comes from our study on Wednesday night. We're in Galatians chapter 5, the section where it says that love fulfills the law, that love does no harm. And so it's a fulfillment of the law. It's not just saying that we are to love and then we don't have to keep the law. It's saying that by us walking in love, it fulfills the law. And it's interesting, in the Old Testament, there was also, uh, the law was a principle. Jesus, under the law, said to the rich young ruler that the greatest, no, excuse me, Jesus, under the law, said to the lawyer that asked him, what's the greatest commandment? He said, there's two, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. So even under the law, you had to love. So I put out a poll last Saturday, ask it last Wednesday, uh, asking a particular question about uh, what is the most important thing in the life of a Christian? Sharing the gospel, um, studying the scriptures, walking in love, or or uh, uh, something else. The greatest response we got was sharing the gospel. I understand why. But the truth is, if you are not loving when you're sharing the gospel, it's going to be ineffective. If you're not loving when you're worshiping, it's going to be ineffective. If you're not loving when you're looking to apply the word to your life, then it's not going to be effective. So we want what we do to be effective when it comes to sharing for Christ. The Bible says now there's faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. Faith is the means by which we gain eternal life, by God's grace through faith. Hope is that which gives us the strength to face another day. Those are both great things, but love is the greatest of all of them. And the Bible says in several places, above all things, have a fervent love for one another. For love will cover a multitude of sins. So it tells us there, the greatest thing that God wants for us to have is love. And we want to walk in love no matter what. And I think especially when you're interacting online as well, you want to let love be your guide. You want to and, and that, sound, that's, that sounded so weird, so hippie-ish. Let love be your guide, man. Um, you want to do what you do out of love. So much of what is done online isn't. And even by Christians, so much is condescending or angry or in the flesh rather than being out of love. Let's let everything that we do, every aspect of our lives, be out of love and we will be pleasing to God. All right, so it's good to see you guys. Uh, we have a question, first of all, here from Andre. Andre says, good evening, Pastor. Good evening, Andre. Good to see you. You got the first question again. Um, if you could co-host a Saturday Truth Quest Q&A, 
with anyone from the Bible, with the exception of the Trinity and the Apostle Paul, all right, good exceptions, who would you co-host with? Wow. If I could co-host a Saturday Q&A with anyone, but I can't choose Jesus and I can't choose Paul. Wow. Um, Paul would be the guy that I would want to do it with, right? Because he was writing scripture, uh, wrote so much scripture. So, you know how I would, you know how I would do? I would do Luke because you could talk about the things Paul taught. You could talk about, he picked up Luke somewhere in Macedonia, somewhere over in Europe. He picked up Luke after being in Asia Minor. So I think, I think that I would choose, I think I would choose Luke. You could interview him about what happened to him, what happened in Corinth. You could find out additional information. I'd spend the whole time interviewing him, just asking him questions. Thank you. Very thoughtful, uh, very thoughtful question there. And maybe I snuck Paul in in a roundabout way, right? Because I went to someone who knew Paul really well, who wrote not only the Gospel of Luke, but the God, but uh, Acts as well. Um, and um, so thank you very much, Andre. I appreciate your question. Hey, by the way, um, we did some changes to the sound. I think we've improved it. Um, let me know how the sound is as you're, as you're signing in. Just let me know if it's good or if there's a problem. Um, that We would really appreciate that. We're trying to make this better. Also, let me know where you're from. I'd like to know where a lot of you guys are from. So just, just chime in where you are um, watching this from. All right? So good to see you. And we have a question here from Rod. And Rod says, Jesus' birth was from the Most High. Was he, he spirit-filled from birth? When the Holy Spirit rested on him, was it um, was it a refilling? All right, so thank you, Rod. I appreciate that. That's a good question. So was Jesus filled with the Spirit from birth? So we think about Jesus in his complete humanity and in his complete divinity. And in his complete divinity, there would be a way in which he is one with the Holy Spirit. As a man, would there be an infilling of the Holy Spirit? And we would picture the infilling when he was baptized and the Father said, this is my beloved Son whom I will please and the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove. May not have been an infilling, but a revelation that he was filled, that the Holy Spirit was there. In other words, when the Holy Spirit came upon him, it was just a sign that the Holy Spirit was in his life and directing him and leading him. And it says the Spirit drove him out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, which is the leading and guiding of the Holy Spirit, which is part of what being Spirit-filled is. People get really caught up in spiritual gifts, but forget that being filled with the Spirit is also being led by the Spirit. Jesus talked about the wind blowing where it wills and the spirit or the wind blowing on us not knowing where it came from or where it's going and the spirit being like that kind of working behind the scenes in our lives um so my guess is that he was filled with the spirit even before i think about when mary went to see elizabeth when elizabeth was pregnant with john and mary walked in the room and john jumped in her womb in elizabeth's womb and I think that there was a sense of the Messiah being there, but maybe even a sense of the Holy Spirit being there. I can't imagine Jesus, the anointed one, not anointed before. And I, and I guess I need to not be too emphatic about that. Um, but I would say, 
I would say he's anointed. We know he's the anointed one. That's what Christ is, right? That's what the Messiah is. And so if he was the Messiah before his ministry started, then he needed to be the anointed one. I I would think that that would be the case. That That's where I would lean. I'm sorry to give you a, that's the way I would lean answer. Um, I just want to be, I want to be correct in the things that I'm saying and look at them in a biblical way. All right. So uh, we have a question from Kara, Kara and Rod. Kara says, when they interpret the Bible, did they use a little g God or gods instead of saying demon? All right. Let me try to figure this question out. When they interpret the Bible, do they use little g equal God or gods instead of saying demon. All right. I think I know what question you're asking. You may want to clarify that in a little bit if I don't get it right. So Paul talks about the gods not being anything, the idols not being anything, but that there are demonic spirits behind them. And in the Old Testament, when God talks about those idols, that they're not serving false gods, but they're serving spirits, false spirits. And uh, so I think that's the question you're asking. And so in the New Testament, when it says gods instead of demons, I think it's because the people are worshiping the, the Greek pantheon as gods. Now, there was nothing like our God in the Greek pantheon. Zeus or Jupiter, the Roman name for Zeus is Jupiter. The Greek name for Zeus is Zeus, uh, is the closest that we have to God Almighty, but nothing like it, not, not even close. And so there's nothing like him in it at all. Uh, and when it talks about the false gods and the idols that they worshiped in the Old Testament, Mel, um, Baal, Zebub, Baal, Marduk, Baal, Molech, the Baals, um, when they talked about Baal, uh, they're talking about a false god of the, of the region of Assyria, the Canaanites, um, the Sumerians, others that were in the region worshiped and served the Baals or Baal. And this is a false God. Um, I don't think that they, it would be identifying them properly as a false God, even if there was a demonic spirit that was working behind it. And that is interesting that the Bible does tell us that there are demonic spirits that are behind these gods. It may be just in persuasion in the falseness in the false gospel. We know in the latter days, there will be doctrines of demons in the last days. And we are living in the last days where there are doctrines of demons. And um, maybe like these false religions that talk about other people being God, maybe they're just demonically inspired. Uh, and um, so I think that's what you were saying. Uh, I appreciate your question. Uh, Albert says, uh, we have a question from Albert. Albert says, Hello, Pastor. Regarding the strong delusion God will send, mentioned in 2 Thessalonians 2, 10, and 11, do you believe this involves um, archaeology or science, or could it be a false doctrine? Thank you. Well, yeah, let's go ahead and pull that up, Albert. Um, 2 Thessalonians 2, 11 through, 2 through 10 through 12. 2 Thessalonians 2, 10 through 12. Um, I should have done this. I should have looked it up afterwards, but you guys can watch me type it out. Let's just take up two and then we'll scroll down to 10. Uh, okay, so here we go. And it says, um, well, let's pick it back up here. Let's pick it up in five. 
Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And now you know that what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work only in he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And when the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroyed with the brightness of his coming, the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, all power and signs and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deceptions among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth, and they, that they might be saved. And for this reason, God sent them a strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Okay, so there's the passage. Uh, let me take a look at your question again here, um, Albert. Um, the strong delusion God, of God that God sent mentioned in 2 Timothy, in 2 Thessalonians 2, 10 and 2, 12, do you believe that it may involve archeology span or science or could it be a false doctrine? Thank you. I haven't given it much thought um, what the strong delusion would be. Um, I guess it, it could be any of those. <clears throat> I'm thinking, I thought of the alien thing happening right now, that that could be a strong delusion that's been sent, uh, something that God would give them that they could hang on to. Um, it reminds me of when Jesus stopped preaching to the crowds and only spoke to them in parables. He no longer spoke plainly to them. He had a distinct purpose that they would go into judgment and this strong delusion in the in, in the last days. And I believe strongly we're living in the last days. And I think the strong delusion that he's sending could be a one of those things that will just keep people that have, have crossed a line that God wants to make sure that they have judgment. And so God sends them the strong delusion in the last days. Um, yeah, I, yeah, I think it could be, it could be, it could be something to do with science or science fiction, or um, yeah, our archaeology. Maybe, yeah, I don't know. I mean, maybe the what I study with archaeology, so much of it is covered up with um, with science today. And they don't want to reveal the things that are being found with archaeology. Do you know that the oldest statement, the oldest name of God, Yahweh, is actually Egyptian hieroglyphics that talks about the God of the nomads, Yahweh. And it's the oldest inscription of the name Yahweh. And it goes back to the time that they were in, in Egypt. And yet archaeologists and scientists today want to say that there's nothing about it. Maybe the strong delusion is a blinding of their eyes to the truth. They just found on Mount Eber a cursed tablet that has the name Yahweh in it from the, from the late bronze period. That's the time of Joshua, 1400 years before the time of Christ. And they found it on Mount Eber, which is the cursed mountain. So maybe, maybe it has something to do with them overlooking certain things on purpose. I also think about the passage that says, that they willingly forget that the world was covered in water. It's like the world is willingly forgetting that we are covered in water. Could this be a strong delusion? Could it be evolution? That is the strong delusion or the lie. Um, and man's willingness to try to go down that path instead of 
what is really there. Maybe them seeing what they want to see. Uh, interesting, interesting thoughts. Um, Albert, hope that that is a bit of a help. I appreciate that. So we have another question here from Psychman. Psychman, good to see you. Psychman says, um, more on love. Think Galatians 5.22 is punctuated poorly. Uh, think Galatians 5.22 is punctuated poorly. Uh, there should be a colon, not comma, after love. And what follows simply describes love almost exactly how 1 Corinthians does. Thanks, dude. Thank you, psych man. I appreciate that. Uh, let's go ahead and take a look at this passage in, in uh, 522, and we'll see if we can figure out what you're talking about. Galatians, and we'll just go to 5, and I'll put it up on the screen. All right. Okay, so Galatians 5, and we get to 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such, there is no law. All right, so yeah, thank you, Psych Man. I appreciate that. Um, yeah, and I've heard this before, and I think it could be right, that the fruit of the Spirit is not fruits of the Spirit, right? It's the fruit of the Spirit. But of course, fruit, you know, you don't say nice fruits bowl, you say fruit. And I don't know in the original language whether it's plural or singular, but the fruit of the spirit is love. The idea is that it is love. The fruit of the spirit is love. And that a description of love would be joy, peace, long suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And I agree with you that that can be connected to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 really, really easy in what love is. Um, I don't know if that's the case. Uh, it's kind of like there's an analogy being used here already. Fruit. So the fruit of the Spirit. So as fruit is to a tree, the fruit of the Spirit is to us. So it's hard to say exactly what was in his mind when he wrote or what the Holy Spirit has in mind as he writes this out. Um, but I think we could say the fruit of the Spirit is love. And that love is joy and peace and long-suffering and kind and good and faithful, gentle, and has self-control. I like that. And um, I wouldn't have a problem with um, that being taught that way. I think it would be true uh, to the text. And um, I'm wondering if I, I would love to look at different versions of the Bible to see what those who are translating from the, the Greek into English uh, have the different ways that they do this. Um, let me see if I can get my Amplified Bible up here and just take a look. Sometimes that helps. All right, there it is. So Amplified Bible, and we're going to go to Galatians 5.22. 5.22. And I'm put this up on the screen for you here, and we'll see what the Amplified Bible says. That might be a little helpful. We could also look at the Strong's and see if that I want to get an app that has the um, BDAG on it instead of Strong's. All right. Um, all right. So let's take a look here and see if um, this says anything different. That's not where I want to be. That's where I want to be. All right. So, but the fruit of the Spirit, the result of His presence within us is love, unselfish concern for others, 
joy, inner, peace, patience, not the ability to wait, but how to act while waiting, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such there is no law. All right, so not really very helpful to us. Um, I would love to. Um, I would love to talk to, to someone who knows Greek specifically about this. Um, we now have a gentleman who is attending our church who, who has taught Greek his entire life. And uh, he has offered uh, to teach some of us on staff Greek. And um, I've got a myriad of questions that I want to ask him and to be able to look through and see how you look at it. So, um, yeah, I know I wouldn't have a problem with that psych man. I wouldn't have a problem with the way that is, um, with the way that that is taught. And I've, I've heard it before. Um, so yeah, I think it's okay. I'm not sure that it's completely what was meant, but I don't have a problem with it. Thank you. Um, Jari says question when did Adam and good to see you Jari, by the way, uh, when did Adam receive his soul? When do we get our souls? Um, or Nepesh life as it with, is it when God formed him from the dust or when God breathed into him or something else? Um, thank you. All right. So this question comes up these days because of the overturning of Roe versus Wade and the way that people who are Jewish by religion will talk about when there is life is when there's breath and they will go back to this passage. When God creates man and he's just an inanimate body made out of the dust and God breathes on him and he gives him life. And so they say when the child takes its first breath, that's when the child is alive, but it's not alive before that. I don't think it's a good analogy. In fact, I think it's a really poor analogy because God doesn't breathe life into each person to give them life. He bred, he breathed life into Adam and I assume life into Eve. And then from their procreation came a child who was alive. The life was passed on from the mother and the father, the egg, which is alive, the sperm, which is alive coming together and, and, making an embryo, which is alive and a human. And, and if you want to say embryo is not human, well, what is it? Categorize it for me. Is the embryo of a dog, a dog, or is it something else? What is it if it's not human? And then it's breathing at a certain point as it gets formed, it's breathing in and out the amniotic fluid and has life. And we also know that it responds to pain. It's not an inanimate object object. The, the fetus responds to pain. The fetus, if you, you can watch and observe, especially now through, um, through the new, what is it? Four dimensional ultrasounds that they have. You can watch the baby being content, being upset. We know the brain waves are working. So that baby is alive by every sense of what alive is. So I think that the life is passed down from mother to father. And to me, that brings life at conception. And that brings all kinds of problems, especially as science is continuing to advance. All kinds of problems come on the scene. So I think that that's when life started and I think it's just been passed on. Otherwise, God would be breathing into each baby as soon as it was born. He'd have to breathe onto it before it would take its first breath. And not saying God couldn't do that, but there's nothing in scripture to make us think that that is the case. And 
you know, we just don't want to come up with ideas. We want the Bible to give us direction. And, and so the most natural thing would be this baby that is in the womb is thinking and is developing and is alive and is very much human. So um, Adam was an inanimate object before that and not human at all. All right. Thank you, Jari. I appreciate that. Good question, by the way. I appreciate your question. Um, we have a question from Brianna. Brianna says, um, in your mind, do you have an idea of what Jesus looks like? Is there a physical feature mentioned of him in the Bible? Thanks, Brianna. I appreciate that. Um, it's a good question. Uh, no, we don't. And I think um, the only thing we're told is in Isaiah, where it says, <laughs> I think I'm gonna have to sneeze. Uh, where it, The only thing that we have is in the book of Isaiah, where it says that there was nothing good looking about him, that we would be drawn to him. But it may be that that was speaking of him being flogged and beaten. So it's that passage where he goes through, it's the suffering passage. And it says, we esteemed him stricken and smitten of God. And I think it might be the end of 42, the end of Isaiah 42 that says that. Let me just take a moment and pull this up on the screen and see if we can find that. I think that that may be somewhat helpful. Uh, 42, let me get to the end of the chapter here. Woo. All right. Long chapter. Um, I'm going to go put this up on the screen for you and we'll take a look at it. Let's start in verse 24. Uh, it says, um, who gave up Jacob, the kingdom of, oh, I'm, let me, you know, let me get over to the new King James. I don't want to read that in. Uh, okay. Who gave Jacob for plunder and Israel for robbers who was not, is not the Lord. Um, he against whom he has sinned. I'm not sure where I came in for they would not walk in his ways. All right. Uh, therefore he has poured on him that fury and his anger and has strengthened in battle. He has set him on fire all around, yet he did not know, and it burnt him. Yeah, that didn't help, did it? Um, oh, you know why? I'm in 42, not 52. Let me just go to 52. Sorry, I'm like reading that going, I'm not sure why this isn't saying what it's supposed to say or what it should say. Yes, okay, so now I'm in the proper place. All right, um, the sin-bearing servant, right? And it says, behold, my servant shall deal prudently, he shall be exalted, extolled, and very high, just as many are astonished at you. Uh, so his visage was marred more than any man, his form more than any of the sons of man. So shall, so shall he sprinkle many nations. It's interesting, his visage was marred more than any man. I wonder if that's saying, I mean, people can be pretty mangled. Um, it's interesting that it would make that statement his visage more than any man. Um, I've always said, I don't know that Jesus suffered more than anyone, but he suffered greatly. I don't know if he was beaten more than anyone, but he was beaten greatly. That's an interesting statement. Verse 15, so shall he sprinkle many nations. He shall shut their mouths at, um, shut their mouths at them for what had not been told they shall see and what they had not heard they shall consider. All right, let me go. Sorry, Brianna, but let me go to Isaiah 53 and just take a look at it there. I hate when I can't find a passage. All right, so Isaiah 53, 
who has believed our report to him, the um, arm of the Lord been revealed. He grew up a, um, before him as a tender plant, as a root out of dry barn. Here it is. He has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Um, so as I read that, I think what I'm seeing there, and it goes on to talk about him being despised and rejected of men. So some say that that is connected to the suffering servant and he had no beauty because he had been beaten and he looked horrible and we would have turned our face away from him if we saw him. And maybe that's the case. But the way it reads, it seems that there's no beauty that we should desire him would be that he wasn't a really good looking guy. And so all of the shows that have really good looking Jesuses or a smiling Jesus or whatever kind of Jesus they have um, would not really be correct. I think he looked like Jewish people looked like in their day which is not like Jewish people look like in our day. Judaism has been influenced by Europe to a large degree. They were scattered around the world and scattered all throughout Europe. And there's been a lot of, of Jewish people intermarrying with Europeans. And so Jewish people today look European to some degree. There is a distinct Jewish look, like there's a distinct Irish look or Scottish look. I don't know if there, there's even a distinct American look, which is interesting because it's more of an attitude, right? Of the way that you carry yourself. So I, I would say that Jesus looked like the average Middle Eastern Jewish man in their day. And I think he wore his hair like that. Uh, he wore the long robes, um, had the tassels at the end of his robes, but the Bible doesn't give us any any, it, it could. I mean, we know what people look like that live before Jesus, but the Bible doesn't do it, probably because we would draw pictures and we would start to worship it. Who knows what kind of weird things people would do if by chance somebody had made a sculpture of him or by chance somebody had given us a description of him. I think the Holy Spirit has protected us from him, or protect us from that, Brianna, because people would um, end up worshiping them. It's kind of like the question, why did God hide Moses' body? couple of reasons there may be, but one of them might be so that people would not end up worshiping them. All right. So thank you very much, Brianna. I appreciate that. We have a question from Renee. Renee says, question, my family are Native Americans. My sister was going to a church when my father died. People from that church went to my father's funeral and told my sister that he didn't go to heaven because his Native Amer because he's Native American. The natives don't go to heaven. I told her that our dad did go to heaven because he gave his life to Jesus and made Jesus Lord of his life. What are your thoughts about someone who goes to heaven via um, someone who goes to heaven via scripture? Thank you, Pastor Robert. All right, Renee, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Um, yeah, I'm not sure what native beliefs uh, part of your family had that they thought that Native Americans don't go to heaven. Maybe they're still looking back at the beliefs that Native Americans had in the past about the afterlife and have today about the afterlife that are not Christian. And maybe it's like a lot of people mix what the Bible has to say with the culture around them and what they believe about the afterlife. And maybe they've done that as well. And I would say the Bible's clear. We are saved by Jesus Christ and that we go into his presence when we die. To be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. And, and that is everyone. And it doesn't say that, except if you're Native American, then you're not gonna go in the presence of God. 
Um, Native Americans obviously are people just like us. And so when they die, there isn't something different that happens to them. Not better, not worse. We are all people that stand shoulder to shoulder. To God, there is no Jew or Gentile, the Bible says. There would be no Native American, nor <clears throat> nor Englishman, nor whatever. Whatever else you, you might want to say are American. There, there would be no distinction. God sees people. No male and female, too, by the way. God sees people, which is, which is really good um, news for women. In Mormonism, if you're a woman, you're treated different in the afterlife. In Christianity, if you are a woman, then you are an heir. You are the firstborn son. Because in God, there is no male and female. And Galatians says that we are adopted into the family of God by the spirit of God, and there is no male and female. And the reason I said that is because it was talking about being sons. But the reason it's talking about being sons is because it's the firstborn son. And so you gals are the firstborn son as well, because in God, there's no male and female. People are people. And, uh, um, and so no matter what they are. So your dad is in the presence of Jesus because he called out upon his name and he trusted in Jesus. And um, that might not be the belief of some, but a lot of people have a lot of really weird beliefs and it doesn't make it right. We wanna come back to what the Bible has to say. All right, so um, thank you very much. Uh, we have a question from Rod. Rod says, when witnessing the people you meet, what is the best way to get to God? Every person we see is in need without seeming like a Jesus freak. And um, DC Talk, right? Or is it Newsboys? Newsboys made Jesus freak a good thing, right? Um, so, and if you don't know that song, look it up. It's an awesome song, all right? Um, and I'm a Jesus freak. Uh, so thank you very much, Rod. I, I really appreciate that. And I think that this is something we ought to be thoughtful about. We know that we are called to live as ambassadors for Christ, the Bible says, as if imploring people to give their lives to God. That's our call. We are called, we are even filled with the Spirit to be witnesses all around the world. We're empowered. Uh, Jesus said, if anyone comes to me and drinks, out of him will gush torrents of living water. And thus he spoke of the Holy Spirit that would be given. So everywhere we go, the Holy Spirit pours out of us. We are the church. We are the light of the world. A city set on a hill that can't be hidden. We've been given the keys to the kingdom. And so we wanna be effective. We wanna be ready to share the gospel and we don't want to be methodical about it. Uh, that's my problem with the way of the master stuff. I like what, what, what Ray Comfort does. I like how he goes out on the street and talks to people. And I think he's got a good way of interacting with people, but it's a method. And I think that you, could be, you should be led by the spirit instead of a method. He tries to take what Jesus did with the rich young ruler and make that the only method by which you can really get people saved. And maybe he doesn't say only method, He's just saying this is the way Jesus did it. But Jesus did it a lot of different ways. He didn't do to the thief on the cross what he did to the rich young ruler. And he didn't say to Nicodemus what he said to the rich young ruler. He was led by the Spirit. And we need to be led by the Spirit. Now, having said that, Rod, um, I think, first of all, be genuine, be real, be loving, and ask them questions. Be quick to hear and slow to speak. It's gonna help you. A lot of times when we wanna talk about Christ, we start rushing in and people will give us what they think and we cut them off and we rush in and that's such a mistake. We wanna hear what they have to say. 
one of the questions that I like to ask people who don't know Jesus, I like to ask them, do you believe in an afterlife? And um, maybe we're talking about some other things that can kind of lead into that. Not just talking about, right, nice monsoon we're having, yeah, but do you believe in the afterlife? That's why you want to be kind of led by the Spirit, so it's natural. But you listen to them, you start talking to them. You look for that opportunity for God to open up a door, for you to sow some seeds, for you to water those seeds. And I don't know why in evangelism, we wouldn't want to be quick to hear and slow to speak. We want to take our time. A lot of times, the fewer words we say, the more things are heard. And we rush in with a lot of words and people don't have enough to just really think about. It gets clouded by all the information that we're saying. I, um, I'll give you an example. I was sharing with some, I was sharing with someone a while back and we were talking about the resurrection. And so I started asking them whether they believed in a resurrection, just kind of, instead of me, you know, pastor Robert Furrow asking them or telling them what the resurrection is, I wanted to know if they believed in it. They said something supernatural is going on. I believe that there is an afterlife and I think that there is, will be some kind of a resurrection. And I was able to segue into Jesus being the first fruits of the resurrection, revealing to us that he was revealed, that he was resurrected and how much evidence there is that the tomb was empty and be able to plant some seeds. I didn't lead them to Christ, but I was able to, to, to plant some effective seeds. But it all started when I wanted to know, do you believe in a resurrection? What do you think happens to us after we die? Do you think there is an afterlife? Do you think that you're going to see someone who has passed away um, again? And what do you think that's like? And listen to them. Take a real interest. And you're not just asking to be able to get in, in what you want to talk about, but you're really taking an interest in them. And there's something about having that true, honest interest that is compelling. People can hear that. And I even like to repeat it back to them because I don't want to build a straw man that I can tear down. My goal is not to tear down what they believe. My goal is to bring it to the truth. So I, I'll, I'll ask them repeatedly. So you think there's some kind of supernatural existence after life here on earth, once the body's gone and that there's life outside of the body. And what I'm looking for is for them to go, yeah, yeah, that's it. Because so many people will repeat back a straw man and they have to go, no, 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 that's not what I believe. And if they say no, then you can listen again and then try again. And then perhaps because you've been so honest and open about hearing from them and not trying to twist it or to make it sound weaker, they'll be a lot more open to you when you share your faith. But I do think that principle of being quick to listen and slow to speak is a good principle and people will know you really care about them that you really do love them. And I think that that is uh, extremely, extremely important. Sorry, a little coffee break. We have a question, another question here from John P. And John says, hi, Pastor Robert. <clears throat> um, terrible thing things have been happening to me since May. First COVID, then pneumonia, then I fell and suffered a compression fracture, vertebrae. Now my ends co to be continued. 
Okay, now maybe insurance. Um, not sure. Man, maybe you're having trouble with your 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 medical insurance. Um, to be continued. Okay, so you're gonna write out more here in just a moment. All right, so let me just remember this. Terrible things been happening to me. Sorry to hear that. By the way, John, first COVID, and um, yeah, I had COVID a few months ago as well. Then pneumonia. <clears throat> okay. And um, then suffering a, a fall with um, a fracture of the vertebrae. So I'm sorry to hear that you're going through all of that. Um, let me see if I can pick this up again. Um, all right, we'll pick that back up again when I see it. Uh, okay, got it. I got it here. Here we go. Now, ins um, now the insurance won't approve the MRI or additional pain meds that may help. I have the Lord's peace and comfort, but all pain is still here. I feel like I'm being attacked. Question, question, question. Um, first of all, sorry that you're going through this. There are dark seasons in all of our lives. And there's the saying, when it rains, it pours for a reason. Because sometimes it seems like everything just comes down upon us. And you have to think, God could have stopped it, but God didn't. I'm not saying he caused any of it. I don't know. But I'm saying God could have stopped it, but didn't. And so you wonder, is God working in this? So is there something for you to learn out of this? That's the, the question. Um, is God speaking something to you through it? Is God just wanting you to trust in him in the middle of this? And if you are being attacked, remember that Paul was attacked from the enemy and prayed that he would be delivered. And God said, no, um, a messenger from Satan, he said, to buffet me. But he knew that God was using it in order to keep him humble. Now, I, I'm not saying that that's the reason these are happening to you. I'm just saying, if God's allowing certain things to be happening to you, John, it's because God has a purpose for it. Um, he's always, I think he's always got a purpose for our suffering. And sometimes things happen to us because they wake us up and they cause us to seek God more. Maybe it gives us a deeper spiritual understanding. We're in a different mindset when we're facing troubles. The Bible says, in this world, you will have trouble. Jesus also said, I've come to give you life and life more abundantly. So we want to keep the proper balance with it. That, yeah, God wants to bless you, but you're going through difficulties right now. And um, you may be under attack. And if you are, then it's time to pray, to really seek God. Um, if that's, if that is the case, if you are under attack for that reason, John, um, it, um, it may be that God's going to use it, even though you're not under attack. Maybe it's just, uh, the human things that happen, you know, bad luck happens to us. It just happens. And sometimes it can be like, again, and when it rains, it pours, it happens and happens and happens and happens. And maybe God will, God, God will use it for his good if you love him, but it certainly can be discouraging. It can be hard when you face one thing after another thing after another thing. But my prayer would be that God would use it in your life for the good. That, And when I hear that people are going through extremely difficult times, like a while back, the shooting that happened in Texas, and that kind of seems to be a regular thing anymore. My prayer for the family is that God would use it in their lives. That somehow the death of a child or the injury of a child would end up being used by God to do some incredible things. And when difficulties are happening in my life as well, um, I'm praying that God would use them. I don't want my sufferings to not mean anything. I realize 
um, Paul said, I want to know him in the power of his resurrection and in the and in the fellowship of his suffering. And Paul talked about completing the sufferings of Christ in his own body. And maybe there needs to be a little bit more of that alignment with us, where we think I'm going through this difficulty and I'm completing the suffering of Christ. And maybe God will use this. I can tell you my late wife, Lisa, had that mindset, having stage four cancer, having hope that God was gonna heal it and having no evidence of the cancer for a while was very powerful. But when it was evident that it was there and that God wasn't going to heal her and she be, finally became aware of that, she saw it as God using it. And everywhere she went, she looked for God to use it for her. And um, she was in the cancer center. Now it's Banner, but then it was the U, um, U of A hospital. And um, she was in the children's area. And she saw all these, she saw these children with cancer and it broke her heart having cancer herself. And she ministered to these kids in, in a great way. Through our Practical Christian Living Foundation, we got them <clears throat> some card. We just put together a package, a gift package for those kids and their parents, their family. Um, but God can use this. And that's not saying, that's not trivializing what you're going through at all, John. Um, but that God can use what you're going through. But also know this, life has seasons and this season will be done. This will not go on forever. Joseph had four distinct seasons. He was the beloved son. He was the prisoner in Egypt. He was the ruler in Egypt. I was trying to think of what the fourth one was. Um, the loved son, the betrayed brother, the, the prisoner, and finally the ruler in Egypt. Um, and God has, and seasons in our lives have beginnings and middles and ends. And I don't know where you are in this season. I hope it's a short one for you, John. All right. And um, thank you very much uh, for that. Uh, so uh, let's see what else we have here. Um, and you guys pop in where I want, I was hoping that you guys would say where you're um, watching this from. Uh, just kind of wanted as I was scrolling down here today to kind of see the different places that you guys are. So if you think about it, go ahead and type in where you're from, say hi from and, tell, and let me know where you're from. All right. Maybe I missed some of them before that. I am just looking for the question. So maybe you guys already did that. Um, I can go back and look later. So we have a question from Jim from YouTube. And Jim says, is, Christ, is it Christ's crucifixion or his resurrection that saves us? To me, the two are um, inextricably connected. Without the resurrection, no conquering death. Without his death, no resurrection. All right, thank you, Jim, for your question. Um, so yeah, they are, they are connected. Um, we believe in our heart that Jesus is Lord and that God has raised him from the dead. Romans 10 says, and you shall be saved. So believing Jesus is believing that he came to this earth as a man, that he died on the cross for us, that he rose from the dead. But it also says, I think it's in Ephesians that we have the forgiveness of sins by the shedding of his blood. And Jesus on the cross said, it is finished. So if the resurrection were when we were saved, then the work of salvation wouldn't have been finished on the cross, which is how we read that. We read, there's nothing else that we can do. There's nothing else that needs to be done. The work has been done. Now, Jesus was going to rise from the dead and we do believe in him. We believe the truth and we believe in the resurrection. 
And that is one of the signs that we're saved, or it's one of the, the, the things that we do when we're saved. We believe in him. We confess that God has raised him from the dead. We believe in our hearts that God has raised him from the dead. But the salvation for our sins took place at the shedding of his blood. And there's a reason for that. Because life is in the blood. And you and I have a sin nature. And with that sin nature, our blood was tainted. But Jesus was tempted in every way, Hebrew says, that we're tempted yet without sin. So he was an innocent man with innocent blood. The only one since Adam to have innocent blood. Adam and Eve, I guess, in the garden before they fell, to have innocent blood. And it was shed for us. That innocent man shed his blood for us. So thinking theologically, it is the shedding of the blood on the cross. It's not the nails through the hand. It's not hanging up on the, on the cross. Um, the shedding of the blood causes death. Um, it is by his death. Um, I think theologically we would say it's the shedding of the blood. I think there are, uh, there's a passage that talks about his death for our sins, but I can't remember what that passage is. Uh, but I would say that's the moment we're saved. And I see what you're saying, and I would agree with you that if, without the resurrection, there's no conquering death. So the resurrection was absolutely necessary, but the burden for sin was carried on the cross, not carried in resurrection. So I hope that helps. Um, and I think that that is true. The resurrection is absolutely necessary and it is the fir our first fruits for the resurrection, Jim. And uh, so it's very important, but the work of the cross, the work for our sins was done on the cross and the shedding of blood, which I think is also a reference to his death as well. And I think there might be another verse that talks about his death for our sins, but I know there's a verse that talks about the shedding of the blood. And I use that because there are people that believe that he died and went to hell and suffered for us in hell. But the Bible never says that. That's a false teaching. The, the devil wasn't holding him down. The demons weren't beating him up, as some preachers like to say. Um, he did the work by shedding his blood for us on the cross, not going to hell for us. That's a false teaching. And um, Jesus did preach to, to um, spirits that weren't chains but he wasn't, he wasn't in hell being punished. Um, Andre says, and good to see you again, Andre. Andre says, would it be prudent for a person living on earth during the tribulation to move to Jordan? Daniel 1141. Um, I'm interested in what Daniel 1141 says. So um, let me get this, Andre, all right? So Daniel 1141, let me go ahead and I'm getting more used to this thing. Daniel 11:41. Let's take a look. Let me go ahead and pull it up on here for you. Put it on the screen. I know I thought you were going to give oh, that verse. Um, I'm just going to go 41. I'm going to go 11. I'll, I'll scroll down to 41. So let me go ahead and put this on the screen for you. Let me get down to the area. So it's not just going by while you're watching it. All right, so here's 40. The Northern King's Conquest. Um, this is an amazing, this is an amazing passage of scripture, Andre. Um, so if you were alive during the tribulation, uh, if you're Gentile or Jewish, okay, either one, because there's gonna be Jews during the tribulation period and Gentiles, 
and um, God's going to be doing something through the Jewish nation because the tribulation period is a time of Jacob's trouble, would it be prudent for a person to move to Jordan living in the tribulation? All right, so let's look at what this uh, says here. All right, so it says, at that time, at the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, and the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind, with chariots and horsemen and with many ships. And he shall enter the countries and overwhelm them and pass through. Here's your verse. For he shall also enter the glorious land, and many countries shall be overthrown. But they shall escape from his hand, Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of Ammon which are city, ancient, ancient peoples that were in the Jordan area. So um, yeah, that went in a completely uh, different direction, Andre, than I thought it was going to go. Um, when you asked what would it be prudent to move to Jordan? Um, I guess so, yeah. I don't see why not. I mean, it, it clearly says that Edom, Moab, and Ammon will escape his hand. And um, that is the region down by the Dead Sea, by the Jordan. And um, yeah, I, I think that's all these boundaries. I'm just trying to, in my mind, picture the boundaries of all three of these. And um, I, I think they're in Jordan. So I would think that would be the case, um, which could be really interesting. And I've never thought about this until right now. The reason that I was thinking you were saying that they would move to Jordan is because many people believe that when God takes Israel into the wilderness and protects them in Revelation, that he's taking them to Petra. And Petra is in Jordan. And so why would, and, and we, we, we take this king of the south here to be the Antichrist. Why would, why would he, why would Jordan be protected? And maybe it's because God's protecting the children of Israel. And he goes after them with a flood, a war. His mouth opens up and with a flood, and a flood in the Bible is a picture of war, and he goes after them. Um, that's interesting. So there's some stuff for us to work on, right, when it comes to prophecy. Taking a look at Jordan, the children of Israel being protected, why people think it's Petra. Is there a reason that they think it's Petra? That's what I'm wondering. I'm trying to think, why Why do some people think that they're, they're protected in Petra? And Petra would be Jordan, and here we have this area of Jordan that's protected. Interesting. All right. Good, good, good stuff, Andre. I appreciate that. All right. We have a question from Empress Kimberly. Uh, good to see you, Kimberly. Um, who were the sons of God in Genesis 6, 2 through 9? I've heard fallen angels, but how can they reproduce with humans? What does it mean by Noah being perfected in his generation? All right. So there's a couple of different questions um, that are going on here. And let me just see if I can find my notes from this really quick. I think I looked at it not that long ago. I think I've got it under sons of God. I do. All right. Okay. So let's, um, let's take um, the sons of God first. Um, and what does it mean Noah being perfect, perfect in his generation? All right. We'll come back to that. So let's take sons of God first. Sons of God in the Bible are angels. And you see this in the book of Job. They're mentioned as the sons of God. And you see them in the in Job, near the end of Job at creation. And you also see them in the beginning being presented before God and, and Lucifer, or excuse me, Satan, Lucifer's not his name. Satan was, was uh, um, came and approached him. And they start talking about Job when the sons of God were present. 
So when you go to Genesis and it says that the sons of God saw the daughters of men were beautiful and made wives and married them, and the Nephilim were in the land uh, in that day, it sure sounds like the Nephilim are connected to the sons of God intermarrying with the daughters of men, and the sons of God would be angels. Now, the thinking that these are men, that the sons of God, being the men of Seth, saw the daughters of men, the line of Cain, that they weren't intermarrying, and they started intermarrying, and God was displeased with that. Uh, there was, as far as we know, no prohibition between the line of Seth intermarrying with the line of Cain. And on top of that, why would the, Neoth, the, the Nephilim be produced because of that? We don't have any, any reason why that would be the case. Also, this is a fairly new teaching. And I say fairly new. In church history, they came up with the idea of Seth and Cain and that being, and let's see, it's six, right? Genesis six. Um, and that being um, what this is about and not about angels because it sounds so weird. So the first thing I want to do is pull this up and show it here to you. So it says, now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were beautiful and they took wives for themselves of all whom they desired. And the Lord said, I might be sure not share with man forever, for he is flesh and blood. Uh, there were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterwards when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men were, who were of old, the men of renown. Now, if you go on and you do a study of the giants, the Rephidim, you find them in Ezekiel, you find them later on as well um, as you do here. And many believe that this is connected to why God destroyed the earth, the wickedness of man as part of this. The older, look, when you're, when you're talking, you know, first century Jewish writings on what took place here in this event was that it was angels. Now, what does that mean? If angels, Jesus said, can't marry nor are given in marriage, maybe they can take a form of a human. And if they can, was there something genetic going on? It's strange, I know, but there's a lot of strange things in the Bible. We shouldn't reject something just because it's strange. Um, could it be demons possessing men? And then men having taking wives, but it, demons being the ones doing it through men and somehow genetically altering the children. And the Bible says, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the last days. And could there have been a genetic altering causing the Nephilim in their day, the mighty men, and some kind of a genetic thing going on today that would cause it. Now, one more, one more, one more look here, and this is uh, just the passages in the New Testament that talk about this event. And Second Peter two four it says, "For God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down into hell." And this is Tartarus, so it's a it's a kind of unique word. Um, I wish the New Testament wouldn't lump Gehenna and Tartarus. And another word for, for hell, all into one thing, because it's confusing. But cast them down into hell and delivered them into chains of darkness and reserve for judgment. So some angels sinned and they were put into chains for judgment. And then Jude 1, 6 says, and the angels who do not keep their proper dominion, but left their own abode. And in Genesis, it says that they married women and had children with them, dominion and abode. Dominion would be ruling over heavens instead of earth. And had children with them, 
and, and married them, lived with them. And he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness, oh, excuse, yeah, yeah, for the judgment of that great day. Now there's one more, and this one is really interesting, 1 Peter 3.19, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison who formerly were disobedient when once divine, once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah. Now we learn that these disobedient spirits were during the days of Noah, right? It says that here, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison who formerly were disobedient once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah. While the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight souls were saved through water. So these to me make it clear that this was this was angels and how that works i don't know maybe it was through men and maybe it was through possession maybe it wasn't um we know that we that some have seen angels unaware some have entertained angels they can take human form uh and uh and so on now, your next question, what is it being perfected in his generation? I think that's, um, I think that that would just be saying that he was the most righteous among his generation. So let's just go to that question. And what does it mean uh, that Noah being perfect in his generation? So that's what I think it means. I think it means not by any means that Noah was perfect. I don't think Job was perfect either. They they had their problems. Obviously, Job wasn't. He, he was rebuked by God at the end of the book of Job. Um, but for their generations, he was righteous. He was the most righteous man who was alive. And remember, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So grace is undeserved favor. So he didn't earn it, but he found grace in the eyes of the Lord. All right, so thank you very much for joining us for this Q&A. Um, really appreciate it. A good time being able to go through the scriptures and um, really interested, Andre, in Jordan and um, the passage out of Daniel chapter 11, by the way, which is an incredibly prophetic passage. It's so full of accuracy, that's amazing. And when it gets to the Antichrist, it's gonna be just as, uh, when we see what the things with the Antichrist being fulfilled will be just as amazing. Uh, so stay close to Jesus, love you guys. Um, we have a study in uh, an hour from right now, actually there'll be a worship service in an hour, a study in about an hour and 25 minutes. Um, and we are in the book of Luke, Luke 21, as Jesus starts to talk about prophecy. And we're going to be talking about three amazing prophecies that came true. And um, if you want to watch the study, you can watch it online, Facebook, YouTube. Uh, you can go to YouTube into any any video. If you go to that video particularly, um, the one on the, the amazing, the three amazing prophecies that came true, um, and ask your question about prophecy or about that study. Um, then we will choose one of them and cover that in the beginning of our study next week. As I said, these Q&As are a supplement to the teaching ministry um, that God has given me. So to the teaching ministry at Calvary Tucson. All right. So thank you guys so much for joining us. I appreciate you. Stay close to Jesus. Continue to love him. Let love be the most dominant thing in your life as a Christian. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. God bless you guys. I am out. We will see you later on.